going to be in the book of Hebrews today, uh, chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 11. If you're not typically with us, uh, what we do as a church family is typically we start at the beginning of the book of the Bible and we just slowly make our way through it. And so we started in the book of Hebrews back even a few months ago and we're up, we're not even halfway yet, uh, so I don't know if that's an encouragement or a discouragement to you, uh, but we're at the end of chapter 5 heading into chapter 6. But as I was thinking, this is a heavy text, I'll just prepare you. It's not as heavy as next Sunday's will be. But this is a heavy text, and as I was reading through it, meditating upon it, uh, thinking through what to say from it and how to preach it, uh, something came to mind that I heard about years ago. It's, a, it's not an actual diagnosed psychological condition. It's more of a pop psychology type of thing, uh, but it's a, a thing called Peter Pan syndrome. Maybe some of you have heard of this before, I'm not sure, but Peter Pan syndrome, if you know anything about Peter Pan, uh, there's things that are notable about him, that he doesn't have a shadow, things like that. But the most notable thing, unique thing about him in the fictional accounts of him is that he never grows up, right? That he lives in this fictional neverland with the lost boys there, and though they keep living day by day, year by year, they don't age. They just live in this perpetual like juvenile state, this youthful, childish state. And the, this name, Peter Pan Syndrome, was coined by a brother by the name of, I don't know if he's a Christian, I shouldn't say brother, a man by the name of Dr. Dan Kiley back in 1983. He wrote a book called The Peter Pan Syndrome, subtitle, Men Who Have Never Grown Up. And it was mostly about men, although it wouldn't only apply to men. But uh, he was basing that on what he saw as a counselor and seeing men who had gone into adulthood, they've age-wise, have aged into adulthood, but functionally, especially socially, emotionally, they were operating still as boys. They weren't really growing up into mature manhood. And he, he came up with this term to describe that happening in many people's lives, that they don't grow up. Some of the symptoms or identifying markers of it would be things in this might not be hard for you to imagine, things like they avoid responsibility, right? They're slow to take on responsibility, that they'll often blame others for the problems that are in their life and not have an awareness of the things that they contribute. Uh, because of that, a, a marker is that they struggle with relationships. They struggle, whether it's with romantic relationships or friendships, they struggle to start those, to maintain those. They have a, typically a lack of commitment, toward other people or toward causes. They become kind of flaky or fickle. Uh, they have little motivation when it comes to their career or thinking long-term in their life. They're just thinking of the moment they're in and they're sluggish then with responsibilities. When they're entrusted to it, they rarely hit deadlines. They rarely get things done when they're supposed to do. They're acting like boys even though they are men. They're acting like girls even though they are women. And this term, Peter Pan syndrome, came to mind because what you're going to see when I read this text here in a moment is that the author of Hebrews, which I would argue we don't know who this is, but the, the author of Hebrews is going to address what I think could clearly be described as a spiritual Peter Pan syndrome. That it's not so much about earthly responsibilities and marketplace responsibilities, those types of things, but a spiritual refusal to grow up. Uh, they're staying in a perpetual state of infancy or childlikeness. Uh, that's what we're going to see him identify and address as he writes this section of his letter to them. He's going to shine a light on it, and it's going to hurt for them to see, man, I, I am acting like a child, not an adult. But he's going to shine a light on it. He's going to help them see the danger of it, that it's not an 
an acceptable state to stay in. And then he's going to give them a, a path forward, at least start to give them a path forward of how do you emerge from that? How do you move out of that actually toward maturity? And so if you've not been with us, just quick, what, you, what we can know about the, the letter that we call Hebrews. We don't know who it was written by. It's not a typical letter that way. It's kind of actually like a written sermon in a lot of ways. But it, it was written as best as we can tell to a very early group of Christians who had a Jewish background, thus the name Hebrews. And what was happening in their life was that they were being tempted to revert back to more Jewish customs. That They had heard about Jesus. They had initially put their trust in him as the Messiah, but as suffering is coming, as oppression or trials coming, they're tempted to revert back to the safe, what they would perceive as safer, more tried and true ground of Jewish practice. And he's warned them again and again. He's warned them twice already, even in this letter, that they cannot, they must not do that. Now, like if you've been with us, you saw back in chapter two, he warned them about the danger of drifting. That was the image he used. Like we, we don't want to drift away from what we've been taught. In chapter three, he warned them about the danger of what he called hard-heartedness, of having this hard, evil, unbelieving heart that can well up within them. Here, in what I'm about to read, he's going to, to warn them of the danger of this perpetual spiritual immaturity. Uh, that's the image he's going to latch onto and warn them of. So if you were with us last Sunday, you saw we ended at verse 10 of chapter five, where he introduced this idea that Jesus is this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I said I was going to put a pen in that and I'm still keeping the pen in that Uh, but he's going to return to that subject in chapter 7 so it's kind of like he came right up to it to say hey Jesus is this priest after the order of Melchizedek but then you're going to see as I start to read this text he knows they're not ready to hear this like this is going to bore them they're going to be disinterested in this they're not really going to see the value of this because of their immaturity so I'm going to pause for a second and I'm going to try to help them see why it's important that Jesus is this kind of priest and beyond that why it's important that they learn to quote-unquote put their thinking caps on and be a Christian who actually is willing to be stretched being willing to be taught about things that aren't just spoon-fed easy uh, things to take in and so I want to read this for you Uh, I'm going to read from chapter 5 verse 11 and I'm going to read to chapter 6 verse 3 and then next Sunday uh, we will keep going on we'll start at verse 4 of chapter 6. But hear this uh, from this unknown author as he continues under the inspiration of the Spirit, writing to this early group of, of Jewish Christians. He says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. May the Lord bless preaching of his word. 
I want to summarize this section of Hebrews and what I'd like to communicate to us and even to myself today this way. It's kind of a, a longer one than I usually do, but it'll be on the screen is this. I think his message is this, is that spiritual immaturity is dangerous. It must be confronted, not coddled. It must be fled, not fostered. Uh, I think that's what he's trying to get across to these readers and the spirit would want to get across to us is that spiritual immaturity is dangerous, that it must be confronted, not coddled, and it must be fled, not fostered. And so keeping with kind of the the psychological stream, I want to uh, break this text into what I'd call a diagnosis. Uh, That's going to be the end of chapter 5, those four verses, 11 to 14, and then second half of the sermon is going to be about a treatment that he prescribes, okay? If this is the diagnosis that you're just perpetually spiritually mature, what's the treatment? How do you emerge from that? How do you actually start to grow up? So I want to first start with the diagnosis of this spiritual Peter Pan syndrome that we can see in verses 11 to 14. I want to note a few things from those verses, from the text itself, so keep your eyes there. And you may have a a different translation, that's okay, but I'll still try to have you be able to to follow along. But the author here in the end of chapter 5 uses two metaphors that are related to our senses as human beings. He's going to talk about hearing and he's going to talk about tasting. So like what goes into their ears, spiritually speaking, and what goes into their mouth or their stomach, spiritually speaking, right? Uh, When he, and that, that, fits because he uses this image or even a phrase about senses in verse uh, 14. He talks, you maybe noted, he talked about people who have their quote-unquote powers of discernment trained by constant practice. That is a a word, it's a description about human senses, our powers of discernment. We can see things, we can hear things, we can smell things, we can taste things, we can feel things, right? Like we have these powers of discernment that need to actually be trained. We need to learn to actually how to use them well. Uh, Just because we have senses doesn't mean we actually use them well, right? Like babies have senses, right? There's a few even in the room right now. They can see see things, they can hear things, they can taste things, they can feel things, they can smell things, but they don't respond to those things the way that an adult does, right? The fact that you have senses doesn't mean that you use them rightly or that you use them maturely at least, right? So if you think of of a baby uh, who, because they cannot use, they're not using those senses to their full capacity, they're vulnerable, aren't they? Like we see things that may alert us and we respond. We smell things that alert us, we respond. We we know what to do when those senses are triggered, but a baby does not. A baby hears a smoke alarm, they have no clue what that is other than just a loud beeping, right? They may cry, but they're not trying to get out of the building. They're not trying to, to get other people. They just hear it, but they do nothing with it. Or they may smell uh, natural gas that's leaking in the house, right? They're doing nothing when they smell that. You smell that, you're trying to figure out where's that coming from? How do I turn it off, get everybody out of the house? Like we smell that, we do something. A baby, they may see stairs, right? They may be upstairs, they may see, oh, there's these weird looking kind of descent, they wouldn't have words, but this weird descending thing, and they're intrigued by it and go over to it rather than staying away from it, right? Whereas we see these things and we know I need to step down. We, we take the things and, that come into our senses and we do things rightly with them. Uh, but infants do not, toddlers do not. They're not they don't have their senses trained that way. 
And what, we, what is normal in an infant is strange in an adult, right? Uh, what is what's truly happening in an infant, a toddler, a, a lack of response, if there's that same lack of response in a teenager, an adult, something is messed up, right? They're, they're not, they're, their powers of discernment have not been trained yet. And so this author uses these ideas of their hearing and of their tasting, their eating, to help them see they have this problem, but it's spiritual. It's not their physical sight, not their physical hearing, but it's their spiritual intake that is problematic, that they're not learning to use rightly. So you see in verse 11, he talks about their hearing first, right? He says about this, talking about Melchizedek and Jesus being that priest like him, he says, hey, I've got much to say about that. It's hard to explain. That's an encouragement to me as a preacher or teacher that some things are hard to explain, even for biblical writers. But note he says the reason why it's hard to explain, the reason why he thinks they might not even be interested in hearing it isn't because the subject's too complicated. Or it's, he says the reason that it's hard to explain, at least in this case, he says, is since you have become dull of hearing. Like he's talking to the hearers of it. He's saying the reason this is going to be hard for you to latch on to is not because it's unknowable or because it's too lofty for you. It's because you've become dull of hearing, right? That, that is an indictment of them. That, that, that is him confronting them, saying you all have become lazy in how you listen to the word of God. Like you've been lazy in how, when it's read to you or how it's taught, you've become lazy of how you process it, how you try to lean into it and wade into deeper waters that scripture takes us to. They don't want to be stretched. They don't want to be challenged. They just want things that are easy intake for them. And I, I say this not as a correction to us, but just as a, a statement of fact that sometimes the boredom of a Christian is not the fault of the teacher or preacher. Sometimes it is. Sometimes there's people who are boring as all get out and don't even make an effort to try to uphold Jesus as, man, he is the son of God crucified and raised. They make no effort to try to appeal to hearers and meet them where they are. But sometimes our boredom is our own fault. It's because we have not learned to actually try. We have not learned to try to lean in when something's a little confusing or I don't quite get something, I just check out instead of leaning in and saying, tell me more, I want to hear more. Sometimes our lack of hearing rightly is our own fault, not the preacher or teacher's fault. But he's telling them their hearing has become dull, it's become sluggish, they're not quick to listen, they're not willing to, to wade into deep waters. But then he uses this image more predominantly of what they eat, of their diet, right? Of what goes into their mouth. You see that in verses 12 through 14. He, he's gonna, if their hearing is dull, that's one symptom of their spiritual Peter Pan syndrome. Another symptom, a factor that would lead us to identify them that way, is that their diet is deficient, That'd be a, a way that I think the author would phrase it, that their, their diet has become deficient. And so he says they should be at a point, we don't know how long they've been Christians, but he says in verse 12, they've reached a point in time where they should be at a point where they're teaching other people. Not just where they're eating for themselves, but they're in some way even preparing meals to share with other people, or at least a snack to share with somebody. Like, hey, here's a, a wonderful thing I learned. Like, this would be good for you to hear, brother or sister. They should be feeding other people and he's saying they're not remotely at that point yet they're not even eating properly themselves they're not even eating the right things that they should be he says they are still at this point at the end of verse 12 where they need milk 
not solid food. It's not that he's saying you like milk and you dislike solid food. He's like, you aren't even trying to eat solid food. You're, you don't, you're not even attempting. You just only can take milk. You only want milk. Uh, they are not even trying to eat harder things, to take deeper things into themselves as the people of God. And this, was a, this contrast of milk and meat or milk and solid food was a common one in the ancient world. This wasn't something the author of Hebrews is just making up. They would have known this idea that milk, I was even asking my kids this, they know this, milk is what babies drink, right? Uh, not, not to condemn any grown-ups who like drinking milk, but babies have to drink milk. That's the only thing they can drink, right? That's where we all start with intake into our bodies. That's what we need to grow as a human being is we need milk. That's where we all start. But meat or solid food was this picture used in the ancient world to represent deeper things, thicker things, fuller teachings that needed to come into a person's mind and into their heart. So he, he contrasts things like what he talks about the basic oracles or the basic principles of the oracles of God. That's what he's talking about as milk. That's like this basic teachings of the Bible. So super fundamental, basic, basic things that, that God is real. For them, they would have heard and believed Jesus is the son of God. Jesus died upon the cross. Jesus was raised from the dead. They had heard those things. They had believed them. They had taken those things into themselves, but they were not wading into deeper teaching. They weren't willing to stretch themselves to learn about deeper matters from the word of God. It's like they had learned the ABCs, but weren't willing to learn words and sentences and read paragraphs and books. They had just learned enough to what they thought would be enough to be saved, but weren't willing to go deeper, weren't willing to actually take in meat. And the author is telling them very clearly that this is unacceptable state to continue living in, where you're just taking milk, 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 and refusing meat. You're refusing to be stretched. You're refusing to be challenged, to t be taught new things. He's saying that that is absolutely unacceptable, right? He, he says they ought to be teachers by now, right? It's not just, oh, this would be great if you could. He's, he's saying there's this expectation in the Christian life that you move beyond just the basic oracles of God, that you press on into deeper matters for your own soul and the edification of yourself, but also so you can invest in other people. He says you ought to be doing that, uh, not just, hey, be a good idea. It's an expectation, a responsibility that we have that they are not doing so other, by their choice to not take in this deeper diet of teaching, they're, they're not benefiting others the way that they should. But he also wants them to see that even themselves, they themselves are in a dangerous spot. Right? Just like that infant who doesn't have their senses trained is in danger, not safety. Right, that, that they are in a dangerous spot, these people, these brothers and sisters who aren't discerning about what's coming into them. They aren't taking in more meaty matters from the word of God. He's trying to communicate to them their ability to not distinguish between good and evil is actually putting them in a dangerous spot. It's what's leading them to be more tempted to fall back to the Jewish practices and, what, and to not press on into the faith. And so I wanted to give a couple practical applications from this section of, of his diagnosis of the problem. 
And I want us to, to think about these things. First, what would be maybe some signs that we have a spiritual Peter Pan syndrome? Okay, this was written to ancient people. We don't know exactly who they were, what their names were, where they lived. But this word comes to us today, now, right? And it would be valuable for us to think, do I have this spiritual Peter Pan syndrome? Does my friend have this spiritual Peter Pan syndrome? Do any of my fellow church members have this spiritual Peter Pan syndrome? A couple of symptoms or signs that maybe you do or maybe others do would be these. One is that you have yourself a, what he calls a dullness of hearing. That you have become lazy in your hearing of the word of God. And I can't, I'm not in your heart or in your mind. I cannot tell you if that is true or not. But if you put off purposefully going into deeper study of the word of God... That is a sluggishness of hearing. If you hear of, of something, then you just think, man, that's too deep for me. Like, I, I'm not, I don't want to learn about that. I just like kind of staying in the, this simple, easy, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me so. That's my mode, and I don't want to learn about thicker things. That is a dullness of hearing. That's a, a refusal to wade into deeper territory of Christian doctrine, of, of Christian teaching. If we want everything to always be like bottom shelf, easy to grab, uh, that is problematic. Like we should have times like that where we receive little simple doses of instruction, where we get little snacks, so to speak, from the word of God. But we should also be willing to stretch ourselves to hear hard things and to stretch my mind, stretch my intellect, be confronted with things that, that counter things that I think and to hear and be challenged from the word of God we should be willing to do that and if we have this dullness this sluggishness to hear it could be a sign that I'm just refusing to grow up I just want to stay like a spiritual child and I think pairing with that would be a lack of knowledge if you or people you know have a lack of knowledge beyond just the basics of the scriptures and if you have been a Christian for years and you still just have a very very shallow knowledge of the scriptures that is not a good thing that is a, a concern. Like you should be growing in your knowledge of the word of God, growing in your ability to interpret it, to understand it. You must know, yes, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he was raised from the dead, that he's returning again. But there is much more that you need to know to actually live obediently as a Christian. There is infinitely more to know about God and to know about yourself and to know about the church and to know about the Holy Spirit and to know about the world and to know about sin. There is far more for you to know than just those basic ABCs of Christianity. And another concern, another sign that you may have this spiritual Peter Pan syndrome or that another might is an inability to discern false teaching right when it comes to you. In music or in books or a teacher that you hear, if you have an inability to discern false teaching, that is a sign that you have, I would say, that you've become sluggish of hearing, that you have not had your senses trained to discern, what does he call it, to distinguish good from evil. If you have no filter as you read books, as you listen to sermons, as you sing songs, if you have no filter and you're just taking it all in, it's like, oh, this sounds good, like this seems like it has some good to it, and you have no filter. To, to strain out things that are false, you are vulnerable just like these men and women were. That is a sign of immaturity on your part. My mind went back uh, this week as I was thinking of this. The older people in the room, my age or older, uh, will probably remember these things. My kids did not know what these were. But we used to have, when I was a kid, these things called Mr. Yuck stickers. 
Do you know, does some of you know what these, maybe it was an Indiana thing. Okay, I'll explain briefly what it was. So Mr. Yuck stickers were these things. Uh, I remember them very vividly. They were these little stickers, circles. Uh, they were green, bright green and black, and they had, uh, had this face on them. It was just like, a face like that, like a vomit type of face, like a very clearly communicating, this is disgusting. And what parents were supposed to do was they were supposed to take those stickers and put them on the dangerous liquids that were in the family's house, like bleach, for example, or cleaners, things like that. Because an infant, a toddler who may be clever enough to open those things, it was at least a way to show them, don't eat this. Like, don't drink this thing. It will be bad for you. You'll end up like Mr. Yuck. And so my parents would put these stickers on all these things over our house, and we never drank them because I'm a rule follower, and so I'm alive today, uh, thanks to Mr. Yuck. But I was thinking of those because those stickers are, were only in the houses of people with children, right? Grown-ups didn't need those, right? Like grown-ups didn't need to know, oh, this is bleach. I shouldn't drink that. Or this is a toilet bowl cleaner. I probably shouldn't like mix that in my drink. Like they, adults know those things, right? And as spiritual people, when we grow into maturity, we shouldn't need someone else constantly saying, don't listen to that. This is concerning. That has some faults to it. We should be able internally, as we know more and more of the word of God, we should start to be able to have a sense like, ooh, like that is good, but that's concerning. This is wonderful, but this is dangerous. We shouldn't just depend on other people. We should start to have, as we learn more and more of the word of God, we should have an ability to self-discern these things, to be able to know what is good, what is right, what is good, what is evil. And so we need to develop this internal ability. And I, last point of application from this section, we'll go to the treatment. I, I noted in the, the main statement that spiritual immaturity is to be confronted, not coddled. And where I get that is just from this, the, even the existence of this section. That when this author knew, man, these folks are spiritually immature, he didn't just be like, oh, that's too bad. Like, oh, I'll just hope that they grow up. He calls it out. He says, brothers and sisters, you all have become dull of hearing, and that is not okay. Like, you, you are in a dangerous spot. You are vulnerable to false teachings and to disobedience to God. And I want you to see that. I want you to know that. I want you to grow up into maturity. And we ought to be the same. Like, when we see an immaturity in our fellow Christians, in our church, in our families, at our school, we, we shouldn't just turn a blind eye to it. And think, oh, they'll be all right. Like, they, they'll, they'll figure it out. We need to call it out. Not arrogantly or, or brazenly or, or in a cocky way, but in a humble way saying, brother, sister, you are not learning from the word of God. You are just drinking milk. Like, you need to learn to get the meat of God's word into your heart, into your mind. We must confront it, not coddle it. If you have a child, I, my children are not grown yet, but I, I have talked with many who have grown children who are, are obviously living in immature ways. They're, they're living in ways that are irresponsible or reckless. The loving thing of a parent to do when there's visible immaturity in a person is not to be silent, right? It's not to just passively hope that they'll grow out of it. We kindly, humbly address it. We, we, we appeal to them to live up to, to the, the truth that they know or to keep learning and living in correspondence to that. Silence is not an appropriate response and we see perpetual spiritual immaturity. We must speak to the spiritual Peter Pans among us, right? And confront them lovingly and call them toward maturity. 
Actually, before I speak of the treatment, I wanted to say a quick but infinitely important aside from this text. He's talking in, in this text about infancy and maturity, right? There are some in the room, I know this is true every Sunday, I know it will be true today, who you're not even in either of those categories yet. You're not even an infant yet in the family of God, let alone mature. You've never actually been born again. You've never even had spiritual life start. And so today I want to to give you the good news, uh, not just call you become a mature human being, uh, but I want you to be born again. I want you to actually start as a spiritual infant today to actually receive spiritual life. And I, I want you to know that there is good news for you Uh, as a fellow sinner like me and like everyone else in this room, that even though you are a guilty man or woman before God, a boy or girl before God, that Christ has come to become your savior, that God the Father has sent him to not just leave you in a state of spiritual deadness because the thing that is worse than being a spiritual infant is being spiritually dead. And that is how all of us start. But today, the Spirit of God can breathe life into you and make you this spiritual infant, truly bring you to life. And the way that he can do that is by uniting you with his son, Jesus, the one who came into this earth to live obediently in your place. And then more importantly, even than that, if I could say that, to die upon the cross, bearing your sin, taking your sin upon himself, suffering God's judgment. We sang earlier that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that he put him to grief. Thank you for leading us in that. God the Father punished Jesus in your place so that your sin might be forgiven. And God raised him up on the third day. We're going to sing about that in just a little bit. That God raised him up from the dead, not just as a spiritual infant, but as a spiritual grown-up who would never die again. And what God offers to you, what he can grant to you, if you will turn from your sin, if you will repent and believe in Jesus, as he can breathe life into you that can begin today and that will never end. And you can join us in this path of moving from infancy to maturity and someday to glory. But uh, my prayer has been that today some of you would not just move from immaturity to maturity, but from death to life. And so call out to Jesus and he will breathe life into you. And so just wanted to say that I must every Sunday call us to believe, to repent of our sins, to believe upon Christ. And so if that's you today, I would love to talk to you later. Praise God, right? You don't have to have a PhD to become a believer, right? Like you don't need to have intellectual maturity to become a believer. You need to know I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. He was raised from the dead and God offers me forgiveness if I turn to him. And if you take him up on that, he will. So, that was the diagnosis of their spiritual Peter Pan syndrome. I want to turn the first three verses of chapter 6 to his treatment that he gives to them. For if they, if they in themselves or in others see the spiritual Peter Pan syndrome, what are they to do? How are they to actually move on from it, to grow out of it? And you see there's this hinge word at the start of chapter 6 where he says, Therefore... Right? He's identified the problem at the end of chapter 5, this dullness of hearing, this bad diet that they have, this refusal to grow up. And then he says, therefore, then he tells them what to do. He tells them the way forward out of it. And he tells them two things. He tells them what to leave and he tells them what to go on to. So first he says that in verse 1 that they need to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? Uh, To say, what does that mean? To leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Uh, I'm thankful that he gives this image right on the heels of that where he talks about 
a building, like a foundation, right? He's talked about senses in chapter five. Here, as he starts to tell them what to do, he uses this image of a building. And he says, what they don't need to do is keep laying again a foundation of these different simple, basic beliefs. But implied in that is they're to start building a structure on top of it, building a life on top of it. And so he tells them this foundation has been laid for them, right? He starts in verse one saying this foundation of fundamental basic beliefs has been laid for them of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings and laying on of hands. Those may, I'm not certain about this, but may refer to baptism and even the receiving of the Holy Spirit, uh, the washings, laying on of hands. He tells them the last basic things they've been taught as this foundation has been laid is about the resurrection of the dead and about eternal judgment. He's saying these basic beliefs have been laid out like a foundation for you. And he's saying that we need to leave those elementary doctrines. But I would encourage you to think, think and know he's not telling us to forget them or to abandon them, right? The very fact that he uses an image of a foundation, you don't build a foundation and just build something somewhere else, right? If you leave the foundation, it just means you're building up on top of it. The foundation is still there. It must be tended to, noted, taken care of. The foundation must never be forgotten, but we add things to it. We build on top of it. So when he says to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on a mature He is not saying in any way to forget what you heard about repentance and faith, to forget what you heard about uh, the end of time and eternal judgment and resurrection of the dead. That would be nonsense. There's what, seven, eight more chapters in this book, right? Like where he's going to teach them basic things about Jesus. He's not saying forget all of it. He's saying add to it. Like build upon it, build more doctrine, build your life upon this foundation that has been given to you of these simple truths of the gospel. And so there's a distinction between, if you could think of concentric circles, so to speak, to use a different metaphor. There's what you must know in order to be saved, right? These basic fundamental core teachings about God and about us and about Christ and about the cross, about the resurrection. There's these core things that we must know to be saved, but then there's a broader circle of things we must know in order to actually live obediently for Christ, right? There's these doctrinal matters that we need to learn to know what life as a Christian looks like, how it can be fleshed out. And so this text doesn't conflict or doesn't contradict with our value of gospel centrality that we talk about a lot where every Sunday you're going to hear the good news of Jesus. We're not going to stop doing that because of this text. We're going to keep doing that, but we're going to keep adding to it as the word of God teaches us and help us build a life together as individuals and as a church on that foundation of Jesus. But you better believe we're going to continue from this pulpit and every class, every group, we're going to continue to remind you of the foundation. We're going to point you back to that every day of the week, every Sunday of the year. We're going to keep pointing you back to that foundation. So he says there to leave that elementary doctrine of Christ, but he says the second thing is to go on to maturity, right? That's what he says in verse 1. Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity. So we're to build on that foundation. I looked through the New Testament a little bit, just did a search to look up this idea of maturity, of maturing in the Christian faith. And I was reminded how prominent of a theme that is, uh, especially in the Apostle Paul's writings. Uh, He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, brothers, don't be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. 
right? He said that to the Corinthians. To the Ephesians, he was talking about the giftings of, of people within the church and how they're used. And he says, they'll use those things until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the, of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Then to the Colossian church, he said to them in Colossians 1, talking about Jesus, he said, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul, that was a big deal to Paul, was that every Christian would become mature in their faith, that they wouldn't just know the basics to be saved, but they would actually grow in knowledge, grow in obedience to Jesus. It does, it's not just here in Hebrews 6, it's all over the New Testament. And so he says to go on to maturity. What, what he's talking about I think it's more than this, but at minimum, he's talking about doctrinal meatiness. That, that, that if, going back to that image of diet, that there are deep things, thick things that the people of God need to take into their minds and hearts. Things that they need to learn to be able to grow in godliness. And so I, I was trying to think of this, of what are some of the, the doctrinal matters that we can and should be learning about that would actually help us grow in our love of God, help us actually grow in our obedience to them. And I'm going to mention a few kind of rapid fire. Uh, but the eating meaty teaching, taking in meaty instruction from God's word can help us first, I would say, to glory in true things about God that we may not otherwise know or celebrate. Think about this. Studying the doctrine of the Trinity, if you take time to do that, it will provide you with this deep, pervasive picture of relational love and cooperation that will inevitably help you as a human being to know if Father, Son, and Spirit live and operate this way, how can we live and operate this way as their people? So studying the doctrine of the Trinity, studying the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus, how the God became man, that is an endless well that you could constantly draw out of. Because, and one thing amongst countless other ones that it can give you in your life is the value of human, or what I would call the value of human dignity. That if God can become man without ceasing to be God, what does that say about human beings? We've talked about this a bit in Hebrews. So studying the incarnation of Jesus can help you love your fellow humans better because you see the depth of the, the fullness of the image of God. Studying the doctrine of sin, if you do, that's not a pleasant one to study, but if you do a deep dive into studying the subject of sin, it's not just a, a killjoy, but it helps you actually to be aware of the tendencies of your, of your heart as a human being and some of the wiles of our enemy when he tries to tempt us, and that will help you to be alert and to be obedient to Christ in ways that you wouldn't otherwise. If you study the doctrine of election, and I'm not talking about Tuesday, but like the doctrine of election in the scriptures, that's what, that is some deep waters that sometimes we want to stay out of that end of the pool. But if you study the doctrine of election and you do it properly, what it is going to do is not foster arrogance in you, but it's going to teach you humility and wonder and awe that God would save you that God would choose you. And that, that will grow in your heart in ways it never would if you didn't study it. If you study the doctrine of the church, go through the text of the scriptures and see what the scriptures say about the people of God, how can it do anything but teach you to value the fellowship of the saints and to value worshiping together in ways you wouldn't if you didn't study the subject? If you study the subject of eschatology or end times and, and what will happen, yes, there could be debates we get into that could kind of fan up uh, just fighting and things like that. But if we study it properly, what it's going to teach us is the certainty of what is to come. And it's going to help me in the sufferings and the uncertainties of this life now. 
right? It's going to point me to the future sureties of things and help me suffer. Now, there, I could give you an endless list of, things, of subjects you could study, and if you're willing to chew that meat and get that into your heart and soul, it's going to be for your good and for the gain of others. As you seek to, to know Christ and live out better faith in him, others will see that and benefit that. You will grow because of that study. So you can glory in true things, but having a thick diet of things will also help you to be able to identify and refute false teachings, right? Some people do this far too much. I think they become over-discerning, but I think our, our fault typically is that we're under-discerning as Christians, that we're not aware of teachings that are dangerous, that could be of harm to us. If you just know very, very, very basics of Christ and what it takes to be saved, when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, you are not going to know what to say to them because what they say is going to sound right, but there's going to be tons of error mixed into it that is dangerous for your soul. Or when a Mormon talks to you, there's going to be things that sound right, that sound like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. There's going to be these things that are true mixed in with a lot of falsehood. And if, if all we know is the bare necessity of what must be true in order to believe and we're not aware of teachings and uh, things that are false, we are doing ourselves a disservice. We are making ourselves vulnerable to false teachings that have a hint of truth to them. Uh, I think the more that we study scripture, we're going to be able to uh, not just resist false teachings of our fellow humans, but we're going to also be able to refute accusations of the devil, right? Like, what do you do when he brings accusations to you? If you don't have the word of God to stand on, that passage from First John that you read for us about that we have uh, God who can cleanse us from all unrighteousness if, if, we're, if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just. You, you must have texts like that. You must have truth about God even to push back against the devil himself. And so just by way of application for this section before we end, we must be the people of God who are actively trying to train our senses. We're trying to improve what he calls our powers of discernment, to be able to distinguish good from evil. We must be people who do that. That's what I mean when I say that spiritual maturity is to be fled, not, or immaturity is to be fled, not fostered. Like it takes effort to grow in spiritual maturity, right? You don't just become more spiritually mature by living. Right? I know tons, uh, not tons, I know some old people who are f- more foolish than teenagers, right? And I know some teenagers who are more wise than the elderly. Like, the, it's the Spirit of God and the knowledge of God's Word that helps us grow in maturity. There's things we can learn about street smarts and things like that by living older, but not spirit smarts, not doctrinal smarts that know truth about God. You don't get that just by living. Right? You get it by getting God's word into your mind and heart. That is what will train you to be able to live rightly, train you to discern good and evil. Even G- we've seen in Hebrews, Jesus learned obedience, right? Like we learned that very recently. Jesus learned obedience. And if the Son of God had to go through this process of learning and growing and maturity and faithfulness to God, how much more do we? Uh, we have to get God's word into us. So how do you do that? A couple of things I would encourage you to, to learn to get the meat of God's word into you. None of this is going to be revolutionary to you. But you need to have a regular intake of God's word. I'm not going to prescribe like a daily quiet time for you, but I will say this. You need to have regular intake of God's word. Like if you, some of us aren't even drinking milk, right? Like some of us aren't even getting anything into our minds and hearts. 
foods. And he's saying, not just milk, but you need meat. Like, we need to be getting God's word into us again and again and again by reading it, by listening to it, by singing it, right? We can do that day by day, but I will tell you, one opportunity you have every week, at least, is when we gather together on Sunday. Uh, Do not forsake that. Do not take for granted the ability to come and hear the word of God read and preached and even sung in our songs, right? Like that is so valuable to us that we need to learn, I think, to be better listeners. And I know I'm the main preacher here, so I have self-interest in this. But we need to, as Christians, become better listeners. You all are great listeners, by and large. I am so encouraged in how we listen to the word of God. Um, But we need to ever improve at that and come every Sunday ready and attentive to hear God's word read, hear it preached. So we need this regular intake of the word of God If you know me, you know I love Charles Spurgeon, and I can't resist having at least one quote uh, in each sermon. He said this, he said, backsliders begin with dusty Bibles. I thought that was very well said in an economy of words that typically when we are not opening the word of God, we're not getting it into our eyes, we're not getting it into our ears, it's certainly not going into our heart. That is when we start to drift doctrinally, and then drift behaviorally is not far behind that. And so we need to be getting God's word into us. And then beyond Sunday mornings, I mean, or this is actually going to be on Sunday morning also, but beyond this worship gathering, I would encourage you, take advantage of our Sunday school classes. Like we do those, we put them right before the worship service on purpose to make it easy for you to be able to come. But those classes are rich and being able to get into the word of God from the youngest of kids up through adults that we can get into the word of God. Come to classes or gatherings that we offer, like we do these pursuing and practicing classes where we're trying to train our discernment and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and his promptings in our life. We do uh, gatherings of women and of men in the life of the church where we're trying to get in small doses God's word into you to help you grow in knowledge and understanding of God. You need to be active in Christian community, not just come as a spectator to sit and passively experience things, but be part of a life group or something comparable where you can actually come around the word of God and encourage each other, teach each other uh, from the word of God to live for him. One thing, this is an untapped resource for many of you, but I would encourage you to grab a copy of our doctrinal statement, our statement of faith for our church and our denomination and slowly read through that thing you will, if, if you have spiritual sensitivity at all, I would say, I think I could be so bold as to say this, that will move you to read certain parts of that. And it'll point you back to the Bible to tell you true things about God, true things about Christ, true things about the Spirit, true things about the Word, and it will be good for your soul. There's countless other ways that you can keep growing. You can read books, you can listen to podcasts, you can do all those things. But I want you to, to think on this in closing. Just this simple thought, I was thinking of this, returning to the, the Peter Pan syndrome idea. We, we don't live in Neverland as Christians, right? Uh, Peter Pan may have thought it's ideal to never grow up, and the, these lost boys may have thought it's a, a virtue to never grow up, but we don't live in Neverland, right? We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, right? And uh, we, we must grow up. Right? We are called to grow. We were saved to grow up. Right? We are not the lost boys. We are, if I could, this is kind of corny. I realize that I'm on a string of dad jokes this week. But we are not the lost boys of Neverland. We are the redeemed children of God. Right? Like, and we were saved to grow up. 
Not just saved to be spiritual infants, but we were saved in order to grow up like our big brother, Jesus. And we're to become more and more like him. And if we don't get God's word into us, we are not going to do that. And we are in spiritual danger. And so it doesn't serve us to just sidestep that, to turn blind eyes to it. We must address it when we see it. And thankfully, God has grace enough to forgive us of those failures and to help us press on towards maturity. He ended this text by saying, This we will do if God permits. And that's my prayer for us, that this we will do. Press on to maturity if God permits.